In our culture, there tends to be a major emphasis on the individual's importance above all else. What this leads to for Christians is an overemphasis on individual conversion and experience. This hasn't been helpful as it's led to an unhealthy view of the Christian life. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Thanks for joining us as we continue our look at the prophet Elisha. Today, we learn how true conversion and spiritual resurrection in the present lead to an inseparable life of obedience. Well, Phil, one of the themes of today's message can be found in its title, which is The Resurrection and the Life. Can you explain the importance of the last couple of words there, and the life, for our listeners? Well, Mark, as you know, those are the very words of Jesus himself, and they're very appropriate for today's story. And they remind us that when God raises his people, not just physically, but spiritually, he gives them a whole new life. And we'll see that new life today in a woman and her son. These are people we met earlier in the story of Elisha, a woman whose son was raised from the dead. And this story is about their life after life after death. We'll learn also about the providence of God. Maybe we should get a working definition for what the providence of God is all about. Well, Mark, just the very word providence is a reminder that God is the God who provides. But when we talk about the providence of God, we're not just talking about him giving us our daily bread, but we are talking about his providence in the fullest sense, his total care for the whole creation. And in today's story, we'll see how his providence has worked out in the lives of his children. We'll see how faithful God is to take care of our needs, how timely his provision often is at just the right time, just when we need it. And many times how abundant his provision is. And I hope today's message will be a special encouragement for listeners who are going through a difficult time wondering how God will take care of their needs. Well, thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1, and listen to God's Word for us today. If you know anything about the life of Jesus Christ, you may know that there was a man named Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. I sometimes wonder what that experience might have been like for Lazarus. One moment his soul, I suppose, was in paradise and his body was moldering in the grave, and then in the very next instant his soul and his body were knit together and he stumbled out of the cave and back to life. The Bible doesn't give his life-after-death testimony. So we don't know what that experience was like, but the poet Henry Coleman imagines it something like this. He imagines Lazarus looking down at his grave clothes and trying to figure out what happened. Where am I, or how came I here? Hath death bereaved me of my breath, or do I dream? These linens plainly show this cave did keep my flesh in its dead sleep. And yet a noise, methought I heard, so sweet a voice. And sure, I heard it charge me by name, even thus, O Lazarus, come forth at large. Well, whatever it was like, Lazarus surely did have a life-after-resurrection experience. Being raised from the dead was not the last thing that ever happened to him. In a way, it was only the beginning And thus, Lazarus was living proof of the words that Jesus spoke to his sister Martha, I am the resurrection and 
the life. As we turn to 2 Kings chapter 8, we find that two friends of Elisha had a similar experience. For the first part of their story was told back in chapter 4. One day, the young son of this Shunammite woman experienced a sudden pain in his head, and within hours he was dead. And in her bitter grief, his mother accused Elisha for her loss. The prophet did not defend himself. He simply went to the couch where the boy lay dead, and he prayed over his body, and the Lord raised him back to life. That was the resurrection, and it was such a significant event that we find it mentioned not once, but four different times in the first six verses of chapter 8. The event was never to be forgotten, but it wasn't the end of the story, for this woman and her son experienced life after life after death. And the second part of their story teaches us about the Christian life. For a new life in Christ begins with a sort of resurrection. One moment the sinner is dead in sin. The very next instant he or she receives spiritual power to repent for sin and to receive Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit exerts that same incomparably great power with which God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that power is used to give the sinner new spiritual life. That resurrection event, that regeneration as it is called, is followed by a life. There is more to Christianity than simply making a one-time decision for Christ. The popular artist Amy Grant sings a song about a man who refuses to get on with his spiritual life. She sings, I know a man. Maybe you know him too. You can never tell. He might even be you. He knelt at the altar and that was the end. He's saved and that's all that matters to him. That man is a man who needs to get a life, a Christian life, because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life and receiving him as a personal Savior is only the beginning. As we read this story about the Shunammite and her son, we learn at least three things about life in Christ after the resurrection. It's a life of providence, it is a life of obedience, and it is a life of witness. First, a life of providence, which is a long way of saying that God will take care of you. You see, once God receives you as his friend in the name of Jesus Christ, he will never abandon you. It will always provide for you because you are his dear child. The Shunammite and her son needed someone to take care of them. Time and again, they lacked the bare necessities of life. We find it in verse 1, Elisha had said to the woman, Go away with your family because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. So the woman and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines for seven years. There are three things to notice about God's providence for them. First is His faithfulness, the faithfulness of His providence. This woman and her son were strangers in a strange land. They had no home, no food, no friends, and yet 
God cared for them day after day for seven long years. His mercies were new every morning. He gave them their daily bread. And this is the faithfulness of God's providence. He doesn't simply care for his people once and then leave them to fend for themselves the rest of the time. He takes care of them day after day, month after month, year after year. And we need to remember the faithfulness of God's providence every time that we have a new need in our lives. Too many Christians experience God's providence once and then forget to trust Him the next time that they find themselves in need of food or in need of shelter or in need of some other thing for life. God is faithful to provide. And He will be as faithful to you in the future as He has been in the past. God proved Himself faithful to the Shunammite and her son more than once. When the famine was over, they returned to Samaria, and at the end of the seven years, she came back and went to the king to beg for her house and her land. And since the woman's husband is not mentioned at this point, we infer that he might now be deceased. If that's the case, the woman and her son have become homeless and husbandless and fatherless. They are refugees. And yet the God who shows his hospitality to the homeless and his love for widows and his fatherly care for orphans will take care of them. And here we notice the timeliness of God's providence. Verse 4, the king was talking to Gehazi and had said, tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. And just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. And so of all the days when the Shunammite could have returned to Samaria, God ordained her coming for that very day when her name came up at the royal palace. In fact, God timed her arrival to the very minute For of all the hours of that day, she appeared at the very moment when her name was on Gehazi's lips. And speaking of the Shunammite, he said, here she is now. Ah, the king replied, we were just chatting about you. You see, when it comes to having needs met, in many cases, timing is everything. And yet, so often, God gets criticized for his timing as well as for everything else. The moment of need draws closer and closer. Where will my next meal come from? The believer cries out to God. If I don't find an apartment soon, Lord, I'll be out on the streets. Or perhaps a missionary comes nearly to the day of departure, and yet is still waiting for a visa. Doesn't God know how late it is getting? The answer is that God always knows what time it is. He made time in the first place, and so He never runs out of time. He will rule over the moments and the days until the very end of time. As the Scripture says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Therefore, the believer can always count on God to provide in his good time. There's a wonderful story about God's timely provision 
in the history of Dallas Theological Seminary, a seminary we don't mention as often as some others. Shortly after the seminary was founded back in the 1920s, it almost came to the point of bankruptcy. And the creditors were to foreclose at noon on a particular day. And that morning, the founders of the school met in the president's office to pray. And when it was Harry Ironside's turn to pray, he said, Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some of them (laughs) and send us the money. And it was about that time in that hour of the morning that a tall Texan strode into the office of the seminary and he said, howdy. This is what my sources tell me. Howdy. I just sold two carloads of cattle over in Fort Worth and I feel God wants me to give this money to the seminary. So the secretary took the check and she knocked on the door of the president's office and she handed the check to the president and he looked at the check, and he noticed that the amount was for the exact sum of the seminary's debt. Then he recognized the name on the check as that of the cattleman. Turning to Dr. Ironside, he said, Harry, God just sold the cattle. (laughs) Now, not every story of divine providence is equally dramatic. And yet surely every believer among us this morning can give similar testimony to the timeliness of God's provision, to that narrow escape, to that significant conversation, to the way that one door closed just as another door was about to open, and the way that at just the right time God provided what we needed. Now, God's providence is also abundant. And we've seen that God is faithful in His providence, that He is timely in His providence, and that He is also now abundant in His providence. And this single-parent family learned about that. After the resurrection, they experienced life and life abundant. But when they returned home after seven long years of famine, in a way, they struck it rich. It all happened in the course of their audience with the king. When the Shunammite came to beg the king for her house and her land, she was asking for justice. For most likely, the king himself had appropriated her property. That was the custom in those days, that when property was abandoned, it was taken over by the crown and then held in trust until it could be reclaimed by the owner. And so this woman had a legitimate claim, but you can see her difficulty. How could she prove her case, especially now that her husband was dead? That is why it was so important for Gehazi to be there at just the time she arrived. He was able to vouch for her story, and as a result, the king restored her house and her land. Now, that would be enough. But as they say on television, wait, there's more. For the king assigned an official to her case, as we read in verse 6, and said, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. You see, the king went beyond what the law strictly required. He appointed a caseworker to calculate and to return all of the back taxes on her property. It amounted to an abundant providence. 
And in a way, God has promised to every one of his sons and daughters that he will provide what this woman and her son received. For God has always promised his people a home in the land. This is the promise that he made to the patriarchs, a land to call their own. And by giving them eventually the land, God taught his people to make their home with him. He taught them to testify in the words of the psalm, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Jesus Christ makes the same promise to everyone who wants to take up residence with him. If anyone loves me, Jesus says, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is what it means to invite Jesus into your heart. It means to invite his spirit to take up residence within your heart and life. The believer's heart becomes a sort of haven for the living presence of the living God. When someone asks Jesus to come into his or her heart and God takes up his residence, then the believer always finds himself or herself at home with God. And Once you do that, you will never be homeless. This is what Jesus Christ has promised in his word. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I am going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You see, knowing Jesus Christ is not just for the resurrection, but also for the life, and that is eternal life. Life in Christ is the good life. Now, in order to experience this good life in Christ, you must understand that it is a life of obedience. God takes care of his people as they follow his will for their lives. Providence usually comes in response to obedience. That's the way it was for this woman and for her son. Elisha had said, go away with your family and stay for a while. And the woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. Human beings are so prone to disobey God that we should always take careful notice whenever someone actually does what God says. And this woman did exactly as she was told. Now, some people expect God to provide for them whether or not they obey him. And you can tell this by the way that they complain about their situation in life. They complain, for example, about their marriage. And yet at the same time, they refuse to follow God's instructions for their part of that marriage. Or on another occasion, they may blame God because they are out of work. And yet at the same time, they refuse to train for or to look for work. Or they expect divine guidance, wisdom for life without living in daily communion with God. You can see how foolish all of these things are because God usually takes care of his people as they take care of their business. Those who are not living in basic obedience have no right to expect a miraculous providence. 
This Shunammite woman was living in basic obedience. She went where God told her to go. She also obeyed God by waiting on him. For seven years, this little family waited on God for their daily needs, expecting that he would provide just as he said he would provide. And in this postmodern world, few people take the time to wait for God. We are always on the move. We hurry from one place to the next. We fill every space with noise and activity. And many of us expect God to keep the same frenzied pace. We want the Lord to hurry up and do something. And yet just as often what the Lord wants us to do is to hurry up and wait. This Shunammite woman knew how to wait. Her example stands in contrast to the king of Israel that we met in the previous episode. At the end of chapter 6, when his city was besieged and when his people were starving, he gave up all hope. And this is what he said, Why should I wait on the Lord any longer? Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Well, here is one reason. Waiting upon the Lord is a mark of godliness. The psalmist wrote, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. The same was true of Micah, who said, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Have you learned how to wait for the Lord? the way that the psalmist waited and the way that the Shunammite waited. To wait for the Lord is to sit and to be still and to wait for His guidance. It is to look expectantly for His provision. It is to believe that His grace is sufficient for your need. And it is to trust Him to do these things even before He has started to do them. Andrew Murray had this to say about the obedience of waiting on God. If any army has been sent out to march into an enemy's country and news is received that it is not advancing, the question is at once asked, what is the cause of the delay? The answer will very often be waiting for supplies. All the stores of provisions or clothing or ammunition have not arrived, and without these it dare not proceed It is likewise in the Christian life, day by day, at every step, we need our supplies from above. And there is nothing so necessary as to cultivate that spirit of dependence on God and of confidence in Him, which refuses to go on without the needed supply of grace and strength. Those who wait upon God in this way, not only for material things, but also for spiritual things, will never be disappointed, where God always answers those who wait upon Him. Now, we've been thinking this morning about life after resurrection. It's a life of providence, a life of obedience, and then finally and briefly, it is a life of witness. And here our attention shifts away from the Shunammite woman and towards the king's servant, Gehazi. 
And his presence in this chapter is something of a puzzle. For when last we saw him, greedy Gehazi was slowly making his way from Elisha's presence. We read about this at the end of chapter 5. He had served for many years as the prophet's assistant. He was an eyewitness of Elisha's miracles, including the cleansing of Naaman the Valiant from his leprosy. And yet, Gehazi had grown unhappy with his salary package, and so he tried to steal an offering from Naaman. And in the process, you may remember, he ended up putting a surcharge on God's free grace. And so Elisha pronounced God's curse upon him and his family. He promised that Naaman's leprosy would cling to him and to his family forever. And as Gehazi left Elisha's presence, he was white as snow. The puzzle is to know how Gehazi ended up in the service of the king. Once he became a leper, no one expected to see him in public again. And yet here, several chapters and several years later, he has a prominent role in the royal court. What happened? Well, some scholars suggest that Second Kings is out of order although actually there are no literary grounds for thinking so. Others suggest that the leprosy was only a minor skin ailment, which is an issue we talked about before. Perhaps it was serious enough to prevent him from serving as a prophet, but not serious enough to cut him off from human contact altogether. And that is a possibility. But I think a more likely explanation is that God has had mercy on Gehazi's soul and his body, because he has repented for his sins. For in this chapter, we find Gehazi fulfilling an almost apostolic function. For like the apostles, he was an eyewitness of a resurrection. And like the apostles, he became a witness about that resurrection. And here the lesson is that those who know God's resurrection power are called to a life of witness. The king gave Gehazi a perfect evangelistic opportunity, and Gehazi made the most of it. The king was talking to Gehazi, and he said, Tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. It's a wonderful way to describe the work of an evangelist. He or she is someone who tells others the great things that God has done, including those things that he has done through his servants. And of course, among the great things Gehazi mentioned was the way that Elisha had restored the dead to life. He had seen the resurrection and he became a witness. The importance of this for the Christian life is greatly emphasized in the book of Acts. Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so they were. They were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, and they became witnesses to his resurrection power. And so at Pentecost, Peter preached, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. God told him to be his witness to all men of what he has seen and heard. But of course, that life of witness is not just for apostles. It is for everyone who has experienced the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It is for everyone who has come to Christ in faith. God has called every 
believer to witness about his salvation. The resurrection and the life are meant to be shared. Gehazi did that. He was restored to a place of fruitful service. Perhaps it's not insignificant that he does not return to the prophetic ministry. Perhaps his sin, which was tantamount to denying the gospel, was too egregious for him to remain a prophet. In some cases, those men who have disgraced the church by falling into scandalous sin should not return to public ministry. The pulpit is not the place for them, and yet there is a place for them, as there was a place for Gehazi. Gehazi's example is an encouragement to anyone who has ever failed in the Christian life, and especially to anyone who has ever failed in the course of ministry. Do you ever feel as if you have let God down? As if perhaps for all of the talents and abilities God has given you, you have not really returned the kind of investment that He has made in you and in your life? If so, you should know that God still has a place for you, that God still has a place of ministry and of service for you. He can still use you. In fact, it is very doubtful whether God has ever used anyone to do His work, saving the Lord Jesus Christ, who has not failed in the course of that work. The army of God must be the only military force in the history of the world which is made up entirely of former deserters. Imagine for a moment that you are serving on a pastoral search committee and you have been asked to choose among the various biblical heroes of the faith. Whom would you choose? Which of the great men of the Scriptures does not have an ugly black mark on his resume? Abraham was a cover-up artist. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses was a murderer on the run. David was an adulterer as well as a murderer. Elijah quit in the middle of his calling. Peter denied the Christ. Paul was a blasphemer and a violent man. John Mark quit in the middle of his first missions trip, and it reminds us also of Jonah, who quit even before his first mission trip began. Sinners and quitters, every last one of them. When God has His work to be done, He has no choice, it seems, but to use those who are former failures. And what prepared each of these men for great fruitful service in the kingdom of God was not great godliness, but great repentance. And unless I am very much mistaken, that was true also of Gehazi, that he repented for his greed and for his deceit and for his covetousness and for his theft and blasphemy. And even after all those things, God was able to use him as a witness to his resurrection power. And if you have come to know Jesus Christ, who is himself the resurrection and the life, and he will use you to do the very same thing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the encouragement of these verses. We can 
Imagine the various kinds of encouragement various people need this morning. Some of us need to be reminded that you do provide at just the right time. Others need to be reminded that we need to obey you. And all of us need to be reminded of the necessity of bearing witness to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would make us to be your witnesses. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.